You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon this evening, The Savior's Method. The Savior's Method. Tonight we'll be going back to what we started to unpack last week in the Gospel of John, and that being of of course, the story of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with Jesus. Now, if you remember from last week, our primary focus was unpacking the Savior's heart for the lost, why Jesus truly is the source of living water prophesied about in the Old Testament. If you recall from last week's sermon, we discussed the Savior's pursuit for those who are wearied from sin, from the consequences of sin, and how Jesus, out of an abundance of mercy and grace, pursues them and and pours out on on those who come to him and believe in him and then from that pouring out again that's when we truly experience that that forgiveness that reconciliation that right relationship with a holy god that is what christ offers to this woman of samaria this is what the living waters of god is forgiveness reconciliation it's cleansing of sin it's eternal life it's salvation this is the gospel of course Now, that was important for us to discuss last week because it sets us up for what we'll be discussing this week, which is the Savior's method of evangelism. The Savior's method of evangelism. What we see in our passage is the method in which Christ used to share the good news of himself to this lost Samaritan woman. And I believe similar to how we can learn and look to the Lord's Prayer to see a blueprint of how we ought to pray, we can also look at this situation, this story of this encounter of the Samaritan woman to learn a sort of blueprint on how we ought to approach sharing the gospel with unbelievers, with the lost. And again, that's why it's important to, to, it was important for us to have discussed the message of the gospel last week because now we'll be looking at the, the method in which we dispense that and the method in which we propagate that truth. Last week was the message, this week is the method. And my hope, church, is that as we unpack our passage tonight that we would apply the Savior's method for whenever we go talk to unbelievers or whenever we go share the gospel with, with unbelieving loved ones or friends or families and, or even a stranger on the street. Listen, church, something that I've really been praying for every night consistently is that we would become a discipling church. A church that uh, makes disciples, a church that truly exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that we would have a passion for the lost and a desire to see unbelievers become saved and be reconciled to a holy God. And that happens when we actually go and do the great commission to go and actually make disciples. And I understand that maybe some of us are not all there yet and maybe some of us don't know how to evangelize or how to share the gospel and that's what we'll be unpacking tonight. Hopefully it will help you in in that endeavor and and really this is the heart of this encounter with the Samaritan woman. Yes, Jesus met with her in order to bring the good news to her and have her be saved, but we also see that this was meant to be a lesson for his disciples uh, who, who, and uh, a recognition of the mission that they had, the message that they were to deliver, and of course the method that they were to deliver it by. Later in the same chapter, Jesus even says to his disciples when the disciples return, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
The lost are ready to be saved. There are are sinners ready to repent. Unbelievers ready to believe. Jesus uses this encounter to teach his disciples about the necessity to go and evangelize. And my hope is that having examined the message of the gospel last week, that we would be willing to adapt the Savior's method in sharing the gospel to the lost. Beloved, again, my hope is that we become a disciple-making church. That individually and corporately, we live out the great commission to go and make disciples. And I believe what we'll learn tonight from the Savior's method of evangelism will help us live that out. So without further ado, let's jump into our passage. Everyone say jump. So what is the Savior's method to evangelism or sharing the gospel? Well, the first thing that we see is the Savior's obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. As we talked about last week, John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. But we noted last week that it wasn't because of some geographical necessity. If you remember, there was a road that went from Judea straight up to Galilee, right where the Jordan River was, where Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And so if he wanted to get to, to Galilee, he could have just used that road straight up uh, to the north. But as we concluded, Jesus had to, had to go to Samaria because he had to be in a town called Sychar by Jacob's well at the sixth hour at noon in order to meet a Samaritan woman who came to draw water. Jesus' journey to this well wasn't random, as we've mentioned. It wasn't coincidental. It, it, was, it was intentional. It was purposeful. And it had the aim of reaching the Samaritan with the gospel. Now we can deduce from the rest of scripture that The Holy Spirit is the one that led Christ to this well, that sent him to this mission in Samaria to meet the Samaritan woman. We know this because we see the Holy Spirit do this in other occasions as well. In the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, we see how it is the Holy Spirit that leads Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It was the Spirit that brought Philip the Evangelist to the Ethiopian eunuch. It was the Spirit that led Peter to Cornelius and the first Gentile believers in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 13, it's the Holy Spirit that sets Paul and Barnabas aside and and sends them on their missionary journey. All of that to say, the pattern that we see in Scripture is that it is the Holy Spirit that sends people out in order to proclaim the gospel. And I believe Christ in his humanity, in obedience to the Spirit, went into Samaria to meet the Samaritan woman. And that's, what, and that's where we'll begin our discussion tonight. In order to, what is the, the, the method of the Savior that we see in, in regards to evangelism? Well, it's compliance to the Spirit. Comply to the Spirit. Evangelism starts by listening and seeing where the Holy Spirit is leading us. Similar to Christ and the disciples that we just mentioned, the Holy Spirit ought to be our guide, our compass to who needs to hear the gospel. See, I think oftentimes our approach to evangelism is the casting the net wide approach, right? We'll hand out uh, tracts to everyone, we'll knock on every door, we'll preach to on the streets to everyone who hears and God can use that method, and God has used that method to plant seeds and start conversations, but what I think is a more intentional and purposeful approach to evangelism is allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us to individuals who are already uh, or are ready to hear the gospel. And I believe this was the case of the Samaritan woman. Look at verse 19 with me. Look at what she says to Jesus in response to Jesus pointing out her sin. She says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, if this was anybody else, 
If this was anybody else on the street and someone just called out your sin, I don't think you'd have such a pleasant answer or such a pleasant reply. I think, uh, again, because the Holy Spirit had opened her heart, she receives even the rebuke, even the calling out of her sin in a very, in, in a very respectful manner. Not to mention in verse 25 of our passage, it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. This is a woman who was waiting and hoping, ready for the Messiah to come. This wasn't a closed-off, hardened heart unbeliever. She was someone that the Holy Spirit was already working, already softening the heart of. See, what we have to remember that is that God is always working. God is always working in the hearts of some unbelievers. He's already regenerating. He's already drawing them to himself. Again, John in the previous chapter just said that the wind blows wherever it wishes and, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who uh, is born of the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is already working in the hearts of individuals, planting seeds of the gospel, uh, removing hearts of stones and replacing it with a heart of flesh. It's a matter of partnering with, this, with the Holy Spirit in order to reap those fruits. Look what Jesus has to say a little further in our passage, just a little further down in John chapter 4, verse 35. He says to his disciples, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, that which, to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What Jesus, what's Jesus saying here? He, he's saying to his disciples that their, that their mission is to reap. To bring in the harvest of salvation, Jesus refers to the one who is sowing in the context of John's gospel so far. That sower is the Holy Spirit. The one who cultivates, again, the heart for good soul. The one who, who replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one who sows the seed of the gospel and, and who is laboring and is already working. And Jesus' comment is, is the harvest is white and ready. The harvest is ready. The fields are ready to be picked, ready to be plucked. Our job as followers of Christ is to bring in the harvest. The Holy Spirit does the work in their hearts and we're called to go and reap the fruit. All of that to say that our times in sharing the gospel will be more fruitful, more effective, I believe, when we comply to the Spirit. When we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, whether it's being used to simply plant seeds of the gospel or, or bringing someone to repentance and faith, we will see more fruit from our labors if we surrender, if we walk in step to the leading of the Spirit. If we go where the Spirit is going, if we speak to, the, to whom the Spirit is already speaking to. And listen, from experience, complying to the Spirit's direction is not always easy. That's the truth. Aside from it going against our, our natural nature, sometimes the Spirit asks us to do things that don't logically make sense or is opposite to how we would normally do things. We see this all throughout Scripture. Moses is told to hit a rock to bring forth water. Gideon is told to reduce his army to 300 men. Joshua is told to march around uh, uh, Jericho. Jonah is told to go to an enemy nation with the good news. Sometimes God tells us to do the illogical to accomplish the impossible. Mind you, let's not go crazy here, right? 
talking about the Holy Spirit and all the charismatics are going, oh man, Holy Spirit. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit will never tell us to do something that contradicts the Word of God. But there are times where this, when the Holy Spirit will ask us to do or go somewhere or speak to someone by faith. And all we can do is trust that God has a plan and purpose for, for, for that endeavor, even if we don't know what it is at that moment. I was telling my life group this past week about a time when I was doing short-term missions with, with YWAM in the Philippines. And one morning I was asking God to, to, to take me to work, to, to asking the Holy Spirit to, to lead me, to bring me to someone who needs to hear the gospel and our agenda for that particular day was to go to a hospital and, and pray for the sick who was in the hospital. And, and as we went there, the, uh, we got to a point in the hospital where the, the hallways diverged. And the nurse that was giving us a tour, who was leading us around, said that, uh, oh, let's go this way because there's no one down this opposite hallway. And so uh, our, our group decided to go. And, and, but at that moment, I felt the strong conviction of the Holy Spirit to go down the hallway that the nurse said nobody's at. And of course, I didn't know, if, I was hesitant at first, but, uh, for, but I told my team nonetheless, okay, I'm going to go down this way, and you guys go on ahead. I took the pastor that was uh, working with us down that hallway, and sure enough, right, uh, at room after room, it was empty. And I was wondering, every, every, with every step passing each room, like, God, Holy Spirit, was it really you that led me down this hallway? And of course, there's a lot of questions going down that way. But once we got to the very last room of that supposedly empty hallway, there was a man laying in a stretcher with his girlfriend crying in the corner. And this man was bruised and bloodied. And his face was so swollen because he got into a drunken brawl the night before. And I knew at that moment that that was the reason why God had told me to go down that hallway. Long story short, although it's already pretty long, but the idea is that we shared the gospel with him. And through tears flowing through these swollen eyes, him and his girlfriend gave his life, their lives to Christ that afternoon. Church, can you imagine the fruit that we can harvest for the kingdom of God if only we surrender to the leading of the Spirit? If only we were to go wherever the Spirit asked us to go. If only we, we talked to whoever that the Spirit was leading us to talk to. Even if it seems illogical, as, as illogical as Jesus going through Samaria get, just to get to Galilee. Again, comply to the Spirit before you go to work every day, or before you ride the bus, or before you go shopping, tell, those, tell the Holy Spirit, here I am, send me. Ask, who, who do you need me to talk to this day? Who is it that you want me to share the gospel today to? I challenge you, if you truly want to be a disciple maker, someone who lives out the Great Commission, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. And comply, follow, obey, whatever, wherever he leads now, the second method we see Jesus utilize in our passage is he uses the, the, the setting, the circumstance of this woman to connect with her. They were both at a well. She was drawing water. Jesus was thirsty. And so he opens up this conversation by relating to her context. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
And it goes on in verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Then, of course, still using that same context of the drinking well, in verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. As mentioned last week, this term of living water was an Old Testament term. It was a prophecy of when the living water of God would be ushered in by the Messiah to bring cleansing and healing and restoration to the land and the people. But understand, Jesus didn't have to use that metaphor. There are plenty of other metaphors in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. He could have used the, the, the seed of the woman or the root of David or the suffering servant. All metaphors concerning the Messiah. But he specifically uses the living water metaphor in order to connect with this woman at the well and what she was needing. So if, if we want to evangelize like Jesus, then we need to connect with the sinner. Connect with the sinner. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 23, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now over the years, churches have used this and, and gone to the extreme, of course, where in order to draw in sinners they, or unbelievers, they, they become more seeker-sensitive and they avoid talking about hard truths like sin or hell and, and, they, and they adapt worldly styles of music and content to make it seem like, hey, we're, we're cool, it's fun to be a Christian, come out to our church. And some churches even go as far as enabling sin and celebrating pride and even being inclusive to other religions. And let me tell you, that's not what Paul or even Jesus in our passage is getting at. They're not advocating to become like unbelievers to, in order to win unbelievers. They're not saying to sin in order to win sinners. Far from it. Paul even says in that same passage, right? To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. The law being spoken about here is, of course, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. And Paul is saying that he's under a greater law, living by greater standards, the law of Christ, which, as we see from the Gospels, incorporates the Mosaic law, but it also takes it to the next level. Jesus says, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her. Jesus says, if you, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. That's the law of Christ that Paul is living by. So he's certainly not condoning or to commit sin or enabling sin and, and, uh, as a method to reach the lost. Definitely not. What Paul is getting at and what Jesus is doing in our passage is connecting with the sinner's need at the very basic level. On an emotional level even, even on a mental level. Jesus saw her need, her, her, her circumstance in her life, her condition in sin, and addressed it. He understood where, he was, where she was coming from and, and what she was going through and presented the gospel in her context. And I believe that's what we need to do as well. 
I think before we get into the truths of the gospel, we need to hear the unbeliever, understand where they're coming from, their background, their story, what, what the need is in their life that God is using to draw them to himself. Sometimes we need to consider how we can come down to their level and understand how to talk to them and how to relate the gospel to them. And of course, we see missionaries do this all the time. One famous missionary, James Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, turned the church's approach to missions on its head when he went to China and learned the language and dressed like the locals in order to effectively evangelize to them. And, and he did. Many of the Chinese churches here, even in Canada, um, find their roots in the mission work of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor. And before his, before his revolutionary approach to missions, missionaries were going to countries and getting them to learn English and getting them to wear Western clothing just so that they would hear the gospel. Paul, what Paul is getting at here is that he says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that, might, that by all means it might save some. It's about being at the unbeliever's level, understanding where they're coming from, their cultural context, and presenting the gospel in a way that they can understand and we see examples of this in, in even in, in the rest of Scripture. In Acts 17, when Paul goes to Athens, if you remember that story, while he's speaking to the Greeks, he refers to the altar of the unknown God and relates the gospel through that Greek context. Similarly, Jesus connects with the Samaritan woman in a way that she understood, that met a need that she was trying to meet on her own. Remember what she says to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I will never be, never be thirsty or have to come to draw water here at the well. And it wasn't just a physical need that she was trying to meet, but a spiritual one. She didn't want to go back to the well of her shame, the, the reminder of her sins and her failures. Christ knew that and Christ knew that and presented the gospel in such a way to address those needs. Church, I challenge you. The next time that you are in the midst of sharing the gospel to an unbeliever, to someone who's lost, listen first. Hear their story, where they're coming from. What is it that is driving them towards the arms of a loving God? What is the need that they are looking to fill? Connect with the sinner. And once you do, do what Jesus does as well. In verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Despite having known the Samaritan woman's background and where she was coming from, Jesus shows grace. He offers the living water of God, forgiveness, reconciliation, pardon from the punishment of sin, salvation. And similarly, if we want to evangelize like Jesus, we need to convey grace. We need to convey grace. This is the, the love part that we all like to talk about, right? The John 3.16 part, the, you know, where, where we talk about God's love and God's free gift of salvation, freedom from sin, forgiveness and mercy and healing and restoration and refreshment, new life, all that good stuff. This is the message of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message that we are going to unbelievers with. The gospel must always be presented with grace and love because that's at the heart of the message. God's love, God's work to reconcile sinful man to himself. We are to convey God's grace. Now, something to point out here is that Jesus does, what Jesus does as well is that his grace is unconditional. It's unmerited. It's impartial to this woman. Again, we know the story, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, even the barriers between genders, right? The Samaritan woman even says in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a guy. She was a female. Traditionally, rabbis of those days would not be seen uh, speaking in public with, with a woman unless it is his wife. And especially not a woman with her reputation. Not to mention, Jesus is asking uh, to use her bucket or her, her cup, whatever she was using, to draw water from the well. Again, John says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He is literally saying Jews use nothing or share nothing with Samaritans. Even utensils, even cups, they were considered unclean. Yet what we see is that Jesus conveys grace to her anyways. That's the lesson here. Jesus conveys grace to her, even knowing her, her sinful background and even her lifestyle. Somebody's lifestyle and their background, their gender, their age, even their sin should never be a barrier to us sharing the gospel to them. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, don't twist this verse like many do. Paul is saying, pray for all kinds of people, even kings or those in high authority, because God desires that all kinds of people would be saved, should be saved. Whether men or women, old or young, the poor or the rich, the worst sinner or the deceptively pious, whether red or yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. God desires all kinds of people to be saved. What I'm saying, church, is don't only show grace to those who you deem worthy of it. Don't just share the gospel to someone who is easy to talk to. Or someone who dresses like you, or who's in your circle, or someone who's in who has the same skin tone as you. Again, don't let someone's sinful track record deter you from sharing the gospel to them. In fact, we should be motivated even more so to share the gospel to the most sinful person that we know. Because we know that God's mercy and grace can restore even the most broken sinner. God's love can reconcile the most lost person. God's grace can forgive even the most depraved sinner. Be impartial with who you share the gospel to. Convey grace. Convey God's love. And listen, lest you think that we just leave it at God's love, what does Jesus do or even say in verse 16? Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, 
I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. I feel like Jesus is like sipping a cup of tea at this point, or water, like, yeah, I know. Jesus doesn't shy away from calling out her sin, from reminding her why she needs the living water of God. And church, we need to do the same. If we want to evangelize like Jesus, then we need to call to repentance, call sinners to repentance. There's no gospel without this. As much as the gospel is built on the foundations of God's love and salvific work, remember why he needs to save us. Because we all fell short. We all sinned. We all rebelled against him. You cannot offer the good news without conveying the bad news. It's repentance. The turn from sin that truly, it's a turn from sin that truly conveys that someone understands why they need God. Why Christ had to come. Why Christ had to die and be raised. Listen, if the gospel was just all love and grace and mercy, everyone would be on board, right? No one would turn it down. It's like the free samples at Costco. It's free. Why not? But what makes the gospel so offensive to unbelievers is because it requires us to admit guilt, to admit fault. It requires us to admit that we are sinners needing of a Savior. It requires us to realize that we have rebelled against a holy God and that there is nothing, nothing that we can do to save ourselves. The gospel requires that we die to self, our selfish ambitions, our selfish desires. It requires that we put to death our pride in order that we might live in Christ. And church, the lost needs to hear this. They need to repent of their sins because it's their sin that is condemning them and sending them to hell. Eternal punishment, the wrath of God. It's why so many people are self-deceived in some churches, why, why we see apostasy happen, why some so-called believers fall away from the faith and are, are still living in sin because they think receiving God's mercy and grace and this gift is enough, but they never repent for their sin. They never fully and truly turn to Christ never truly understand why Jesus died on the cross for them. Church, we must call people to repent. We mustn't shy away from the truth or shy away from talking about hell or the punishment of sin. People need to know. If someone was speeding down a highway ready to get off of the cliff, you would do whatever it took to warn them. It's the same thing about hell. A place of eternal destruction and punishment. Call them to repentance out of love, out of a desire of not wanting to see anyone perish or experience the wrath of God. If you, believer, know the holiness of God and what awaits a sinner who does not repent, truly understanding the, the, the righteous wrath of God, you would do whatever it takes to warn unbelievers. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 to 10, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away from, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The warning is clear. The day of the Lord is at hand. The time in which God will bring judgment on sinners is at hand. God desires that those who would be saved repent for their sin. Church, we must call sinners to repent. So as we've discussed, if we want to evangelize like Jesus, if we want to um, use the method of the Savior, we need to comply to the Spirit, surrendering to wherever the Spirit might lead us, asking the Holy Spirit to guide us as we go and, and seek out those who, he's, who the Spirit's already working in. We are to connect with the sinner, understand where they're coming for, know the need that God is trying to address. We must convey grace, impartially, unmerited, to wherever God calls us to show it to. Of course, we must call them to repentance, as we've just mentioned. Before we close tonight, the last method we'll discuss this evening is what we see towards the end of our passage. After discussing why there are differences between how the Jews worship and how the Samaritans worship, the Samaritan woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now there's a lot of grace here, a lot of truth, an amazing moment that we, I, I don't want us to miss. In the timeline of Jesus' three-year ministry, this Samaritan woman becomes the first person that Jesus explicitly and openly and publicly declares that he is the Messiah to. Of all the people in the world that Jesus could have revealed his Messiahship to, the first person he reveals it to is this sin-ridden, adulterous woman, unclean Samaritan sinner. If that doesn't speak volumes on the love of God, Towards the sinner, I don't know what will. But what we ultimately see here is that Jesus points to himself. He declares that he is the only one who can grant access to the living waters of God. And as we talked about last week, he's the only one who can truly satisfy the deep longings of our souls. And if we are, if we are wanting to evangelize like Christ, then we must center on Christ. We must center on Christ. The conversation should always lead back to Jesus. Always point the sinner to the Savior. Not to us or our story or a church or some benefit of salvation or anything else. The beginning and end of the gospel is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that we are preaching, Jesus that we are promoting, Jesus that we are propagating. In Luke 24, when two disciples were discussing the meaning of all scriptures and what happened at the crucifixion, the resurrected Savior appears and, and he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip the evangelist is sent to the Ethiopian eunuch, it says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. We must center the conversation around Christ. This is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians, or I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about Jesus. Salvation boils down to the relationship one has with Christ. Not with us, not with the church. 
a relationship with Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The issue there is a relationship with Jesus. The invitation there is, uh, that is being offered to the lost is confessing that Jesus is Lord. Because by confessing that he is Lord, that means that you are under his rule, under his standards. You're confessing and agreeing that you have fallen short. According to his standards. You're submitting to his rule. And when he says, if you believe in your heart, that's faith. Faith that who Jesus says he is, is truly true. It is, he is what he says he is. That it is only through Jesus that we can experience grace and mercy and reconciliation with a holy God. We must center the conversation back on Christ. Not to a church, not to a program, not to anyone else. We must bring the conversation back to Jesus. So church, if you want to evangelize like the Savior, if you want to practice the Savior's method, comply to the Spirit, connect with the sinner, convey grace, call to repentance, and center on Christ. Can I challenge you, church, as we go from this place, as we end our time together this evening? As you go back to your, your work or your school, as you go groceries or whatever it is that you do throughout the week, can we endeavor to be a disciple-making church? Ask the Spirit, as we mentioned, to bring you to someone who needs to hear the gospel. Connect with the unbeliever in your life. Understand where they're coming from. Understand what is the need that God is, is, is using to draw them to himself. Convey grace. Call them to repentance. And point them to Jesus. To the person who has not given their life to Christ. To the person who's hearing my voice and hearing all this and hearing the story about Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Understand that as we've been saying, as we've been studying, that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy your deepest longings. That Jesus is the only one that can satisfy your needs in this life and in the next. The Bible says that we are all sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. We have offended, we have rebelled against the holy God. And the only way to a right relationship with him, a, a reconciled relationship with him, is through Jesus Christ. God's Son who came in human flesh and died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve. Living the life that we should have lived. Dying the death that we should have died. So that we can have access and forgiveness and cleansing. So that we can have a right relationship with God. 
And what tops it all is that God rose Christ from the grave three days later to seal it off, to declare that his sacrifice was sufficient, that he truly was God. And so if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have yet to make him Lord over your life, I ask that you do so tonight. The invitation is clear from Scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not about doing good works. It's not about doing enough righteous deeds so you can make up for all your bad deeds. Christ did it all. Christ paid for it all. So that you can have a relationship and access to God. The invitation is to make Christ your Lord and Savior of your life. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that you have demonstrated in your word. We thank you for the method in which you demonstrated through the story of the Samaritan woman. How God, you you went out of your way just to meet with this broken, this adulterous, this sinner in order to convey grace forgiveness and love in order to offer your living water the water that truly satisfies I pray oh God that just as you love this woman just as you pursued this woman in order to communicate your gospel that we would have the same passion that we would have the same desire for the unbeliever in our lives, for our lost loved one, for our lost co-worker, for the unbeliever that we meet on the street. I pray, O Lord, that we would have a desire for them to know you and to be satisfied in you. Oh God, forgive us for the times where we we turn the great commission into the great omission. Where we set aside evangelism and think that someone else is going to do it. God, I pray that you would burden our hearts for the lost. That we might truly love like you. That we might truly pursue the sinner like you. Help us, O Lord, because we cannot do this on our own. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you lead us? Would you show us and highlight in our who it is in our lives that need to hear the gospel? The person in our lives that you are already working in the heart of. And I pray, oh God, for the unbeliever in the room, the person who has yet to surrender their life to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use a sacred time to convict their heart, 
to stir them, to move them. God, I pray that we would, as a church, reap the harvest that you have been sowing. That we would reap the fruit of your labor, O oh God. Help us in this endeavor. Help us to be a disciple-making church. In Jesus' the mighty name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.